You're listening to the St. Mark's Podcast for September 18th, 2022, the 15th Sunday after Pentecost. Today's sermon was given by the Reverend Dr. Justin Crisp. It's based on Luke chapter 16, verses 1 through 13. So this past week, an hilarious set of New Yorker cartoons by Natalia Lobanova from 2020 made the rounds on my social media feeds again. They're titled, This is What Your Unsolicited Advice Sounds Like. And they're just as good as you think they might be. So the first cartoon is of two women. One of the women is being burnt at the stake. Okay, so she's tied up to the stake and there's fire around her feet. And the other woman is off looking at her from a safe distance with a face of concern. And the safe woman says to the woman being burnt at the stake, have you considered taking up yoga? (laughs) The second cartoon is of a woman lying on a road. She's completely prostrate and she's struggling to get up because an 18-wheeler is bearing down upon her and it's getting closer and closer and closer and closer and closer as a friendly looking man looks on and waves at her saying, just focus on the things you can control. I'm telling you, every one of these things is great. There's a man who says to a woman who just fell off a cliff, you need to speak goodness into existence. A woman who says to someone drowning, focus on the positive in this situation. And a woman standing over a tombstone saying, maybe you should make a vision board. They're so funny because the advice given falls so obviously short of making any meaningful difference to these people's lives. You can't make vision boards when you're dead. But they're all so funny because the onlooker is telling the person in need to do something. It's the onlooker telling them to do something when what the person needs is help. They need to be untied from the stake to be scooped up and rescued from the 18-wheeler to be brought up out of the water in which they're drowning, and so on. That's what they need. And the best that this world can seem to offer any of us in these cartoons, anyway, is that insufferable-looking, smug, smiling, know-it-all-in-the-corner saying, happiness is a choice. Let me tell you something. Jesus is nothing like this. Nothing. And we have to resist with all our might the temptation to read the Gospels or his teachings as though he might be. Our Gospel lesson this morning is confusing. It's convoluted. In it, Jesus tells a story about a rich man who has a money manager whom he plans to fire. That's how it starts. He plans to fire this money manager because the money manager has been squandering the rich man's assets. The rich man asks his manager to give him an accounting, basically a summary of all of his dealings and of the rich man's current financial situation, so that the rich man can give his new hire that accounting and get them up to speed. The manager knows he's going to be fired, he's told as much, and so he hatches a plan so that he's not going to be homeless once he's fired. He's going to cancel portions of the debts owed by various people to his master. 
Now we tend to think that canceling debts is a really nice thing to do for another person. But in this context, what it's going to do is it's going to obligate the person with the canceled debt to the one who canceled it. The rich, uh, excuse me, the money manager is not acting out of the goodness of his heart. He's trying to do somebody a favor so that they're going to owe him a favor. The favor being to give him a place to stay and potentially some employment. Now, some commentators suggest that the portion of each debt which the manager cancels, 50 jugs of olive oil in one case, 20 containers of wheat in the other, that this would be the manager's commission, his brokerage fee, as it were. So it wasn't money, it wasn't a portion of the debt which was ever going to make its way back to the rich man. If that's true, it solves one of the puzzles, one of the things that makes this story so confusing and convoluted which is why the manager isn't upset, excuse me, why the rich man isn't upset with the manager when he finds out the manager has canceled portions of all of these debts which are owed, right? The money was never actually, the portion of the money that the manager canceled wasn't ever going to make its way back to the rich man at all. The manager is canceling money that was going to come to him. So, the rich man isn't upset. It wasn't going to be his share anyway. Instead, he's impressed. Impressed that the manager has been shrewd, has been clever, has solved the problem, has sacrificed financial gain in order to gain something else. Now, neither of these characters are good guys, okay? You don't need to equate either of them with God or with Jesus in order to make the story work. Jesus is focused on something else and he draws his disciples' attention to it. That's his audience here, his disciples. He draws their attention to something in particular, to the shrewdness of the manager, the shrewdness with which the rich man was impressed. For the children of this age, Jesus says, are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than are the children of light. Basically saying that the children of this age, even though they have bad self-serving, save my own net kinds of ends, they're just better, they're just smarter with their money than are the children of light. The children of light have different aims, or ought to have different aims, Jesus suggests, than the children of this age, than the rich man or his money manager. But like the manager, the children of light have to be shrewd. They need to have some goal for their assets. They need to have some goal for their possessions. And this goal for their possessions, indeed for their whole lives, needs to transcend just money as such. Just making as much money as you can. Because that's what the money manager discovers. That's part of his shrewdness. The money manager discovers that he can forego financial gain, cancel some people's financial debts, and tit for tat, procure IOUs of a different sort. I think Jesus is basically saying the children of light ought to do like the money manager and use their money rather than letting money use them. And they ought to use their money of course, for good ends rather than bad self-serving ones because they're the children of light instead of the children of this age. They ought to use it, Jesus says, to make spiritual friends for themselves so that when the money runs out, as it will for all of them when they die, 
those friends will welcome them into the eternal homes, Jesus says. That's my interpretation of the parable anyway. It makes a little more sense now to me, but honestly, it just makes me tired. It just makes me feel tired. I'm so tired, aren't you? I'm just tired. Great, I think. Thanks, Jesus. More advice. More advice. I'll do a financial review right after I toss out whatever carb-laden something Instagram has told me is terrible for me and after I've read the book that Twitter says is going to make me a better person. I'll do a financial review right after that. Thanks, Jesus. I know you all would never talk back to the Lord in the way that I do, but that's what I'm tempted to say to him. Thanks a lot. More advice. Except I don't think that's what Jesus is trying to do at all. There's a clue in the passage that immediately follows the one about being, um, making friends for ourselves that they'll welcome us into the eternal homes. In the next passage, Jesus says, No slave can serve two masters, for a slave will either hate the one and love the other, or be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. The English word serve doesn't quite cut it as a translation of the Greek. The Greek means to serve as a slave particularly. Not just to serve in a way that a domestic servant might as well as a slave, but to serve in a way only a slave serves, which is to serve as someone with no agency, as someone who belongs to somebody else, as someone who has no choice. And that's the point of the slave language, painful though it is uh, for Americans to hear given our heritage of race-based slavery, but the, the, the meaning of the race, excuse me, the meaning of the slave language in the New Testament is to communicate that lack of agency. The fact that those who are enslaved have no choice over the matter. So when Jesus says you cannot serve God and wealth, he's not saying, you know, take a look at your life and figure out which one of these people are serving and then, you know, just get up, get up and um, get out of the way of the 18-wheeler. He's saying, you can't be enslaved to both God and wealth. How much choice you have in the matter is another question, but you, you can't be enslaved to both God and wealth. This makes us read, I think, the parable of the dishonest manager in an entirely different way. He's not giving us advice. He's not being a moral scold, telling us that we need to be financially generous or else we're not going to get into heaven. And that would be too much like the, one of those New Yorker cartoons. It would be as though we're a slave in shackles, manically scrubbing the floor while our master wealth glowers over us. And then Jesus smiles concernedly in the corner and says, don't let others steal your energy. It's not what Jesus is doing. The next clue follows immediately on the end of our lesson this morning when Jesus continues an intra-Jewish debate that he's having with members of the sect of Pharisees. It's a family disagreement. Jesus is both Jewish and he also sympathizes with the Pharisees more than any other option, as it were, more than any other intra-Jewish community on offer in his day. 
But he is having, in the course of the Gospels, and in the course of the Gospel, he's having this intra-Jewish debate with his colleagues. And in the next iteration of this family disagreement, Luke says that news of what Jesus has taught the disciples reaches some Pharisees. Pharisees who, the Gospel says, were lovers of money and so ridiculed Jesus. And Jesus says to these Pharisees in response to their ridicule, you are those who justify yourselves in the sight of others, but God knows your hearts. And ostensibly it's the heart that matters. The word translated justify here is a form of the Greek verb dikaio. And dikaio means to make or to declare righteous. To acquit someone of charges leveled against them and to show them to be right. So Jesus is saying that these Pharisees have attempted to use their money to justify themselves, to show themselves to be righteous, to prove that they are really good in front of everybody else. And they've done so it's presumably because in this period, the wealthy were thought to be wealthy because they were good people, and so God blessed them accordingly. This is a theory which goes all the way back to Proverbs. But these Pharisees' efforts to justify themselves are both ineffective and an act of hubris. St. Paul makes a great deal of this word, dikaio, in not just his letters, like Romans, most famously, but also First and Second Corinthians, Galatians, and so on, but in the sequel to Luke's Gospel. So Luke is the first of a two-volume set, even though they don't come in order in the canon as we've received it. Luke is the first volume, and the book of Acts, or the Acts of the Apostles, is the second volume. And Paul preaches in Acts chapter 13 his first recorded sermon. Paul is in a synagogue, and he's telling them, we bring you the good news that what God promised to our ancestors, he has fulfilled for us their children by raising Jesus. Let it be known to you, therefore, that through this man, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. By this Jesus, everyone who believes is set free from all those sins from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. So the words translated set free is a form of that Greek verb dikaio, justify. To justify and to be set free, excuse me, to justify and to set free. They're both accurate English translations of this Greek word. You can read that passage from Paul in this way. By this Jesus, everyone who believes is justified from all those sins from which you could not be justified by the law. When you read Jesus' exchange with the Pharisees from Luke in light of Paul's teaching in Acts, what you can see is that these Pharisees are in bondage, but they don't know it. They're trying to be free. They're trying to free themselves. They're trying to justify themselves, to make themselves good. And they're trying to do so financially by using their money to prove it, but they can't. It's not that they could justify themselves if they just tried a little bit harder, if they'd received the right advice. 
is that they can't justify themselves, period. Because justifying yourself is an oxymoron. It's a contradiction in terms. It's a contradiction in terms whether one is trying to justify oneself through money or through something else. Like having the appearance of a perfect family, or having prestigious credentials, or having all the right opinions, or simply having other people's good self, excuse me, good regard, just being liked by others. Just to name a couple of the ways in which I try personally to justify myself. The point of this whole complex exchange between Jesus, his disciples, and the Pharisees is this. We are captive to the gods of this world. Gods which promise us well-being, security, a meaningful life, and the news finally, news that we crave, that we are good, and that we're good enough, and that it's all going to be okay. One of those gods is wealth, though not the only one. And neither we, nor Jesus' disciples, nor these Pharisees with whom he's debating need advice from a smirking onlooker. We need help. We need help. We don't need advice. We need help. And the good news is that the Lord is our helper, not some know-it-all useless Instagram influencer standing in the corner of your life. If you need his help, including with money, ask him for it. Approach the throne of grace with boldness, as it says in the first epistle of John, and ask the Lord for help. If you feel financially stuck in the rat race of a career you find to be soul-sucking, ask the Lord to get you out. If you're buried under debts you cannot repay, ask the Lord for a way forward. If you dread being found out for some financial mismanagement or mistake, ask the Lord for forgiveness. Ask Him for the courage to rectify your mistake and take responsibility for it. If you're anxious about your retirement or your next month's rent or just inflation, bring that to the Lord. I don't know how He will answer you. I don't. But I know that He is a helper. And for goodness sake, let's give up the game of thinking that we can read righteousness off the surface of someone's life, financial or otherwise. Let's not think that our wealth is proof that we're particularly good and that God has blessed us because we're good and that's why we have wealth. Nor turn the scheme inside out and self-righteously flaunt our generosity, our politics, or our lack of income as nervous proof that we are holy and holier than others. Both of these strategies give power to money over our self-worth, both in this life and in the life to come. And the whole point of Jesus telling his disciples to be shrewd, the whole point of him setting them free from the clutches of mammon, is to divest money of that power altogether. Money has no power over our self-worth. This story is about the gods who run our lives instead of God, in the place of God. Gods who promise to justify us, to free us, to make us good, 
to tell us everything we've always longed to hear. When the truth is that the God of Jesus Christ has already done all of this, has already told you everything you long to hear, has already made you good, has already said you're okay and it's going to be okay. If one of these gods has taken up residence in your heart, if there's a voice inside of your head, whatever that voice might be, that is telling you, you're just this close to perfect. You're just this close. If you just grind a little harder, a little longer, you're gonna get there. <laughs> if you just try just a little bit harder, you're just that close. I want for you to do like we all ought to do with idols. I want for you to bring that idol in your heart to this altar. I want for you to take the Eucharistic host and when you consume it, take the hand of your soul, take the host in your hand of your soul like a hammer and smash it. Amen. You can find more sermons on our website, www.stmarksnewcanon.org.